listeners. Welcome to another episode of Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Taylor Moore, and I'm here in Princeton, New Jersey, to talk with Will Hanley about his new book, Identifying with Nationality, Europeans, Ottomans, and Egyptians in Alexandria, which traces the emergence of nationality as a social and legal category in Alexandria, Egypt at the turn of the 20th century. Thank you for joining us on the podcast today, Will. It's great to have you. Thanks. I'm glad to have you here. I'm looking forward to talking with you. Will is an associate professor at Florida State University, where he teaches courses in Middle East history and digital humanities. Will is currently the Elizabeth and J. Richardson Dilworth Fellow at the Institute for Advanced Studies here in Princeton. So I think we should just dive right on into the book, Will. Um, Your book, Identifying with Nationality, is incredibly written, and as well as being expansive in size, scope, creativity, and its analytical heft. It's almost 300 pages, and it's comprised of 13 chapters, including introduction and epilogue. Um, can you give the listeners a sense of your overall argument in the book, um, your general arc? Sure. The book is about Egypt during the period of British occupation. Um, so it begins in 1880, just before uh, just before the British occupied Egypt, and uh, it ends uh, with the start of the, of the First World War. In the book, I'm interested to understand how social categorization worked in Alexandria and amongst the population of the city, and uh, interested in really understanding the language that's used in documents describing who people are, where they come from, what sort of, what sort of people they are. And so it's a, it's a history of, it's a social history in that sense, but it's also uh, a legal history um, because I spend a lot of uh, attention on uh, where these terms came from and in what context they were, they were used to, to describe people. Okay, so in a sense, this is a book about how nationality comes off of the page or off of the legal codes and actually starts to impact the lives of everyday people and Alexandria, which are not just Egyptians, right? I mean... Yeah, during this time period, a large proportion of the population of the city were people from elsewhere. They came from other parts of of the Egyptian territory. They came from Upper Egypt, from the Delta. They came from elsewhere in the Mediterranean, and they came from further abroad. Um, So natives of the city, people born in the city, were relatively few. The various kinds of newcomers were, were many, and uh, part of what I'm trying to understand is how the line between native and newcomers was negotiated in, in everyday life in the city, and also the ways that it was negotiated in the uh, law courts, police stations, and government offices that handled people's affairs, at least when people interfaced with, with these authorities, which, which wasn't all the time. So uh, a third thing that I'm trying to get at, I guess, in the book is um, to, to try to understand those parts of people's lives that were far from the vision of, of the authorities who might write down something about them. So this huge proportion of non-Egyptians being in Alexandria begs the question, you know, is there something uniquely Egyptian about this story? Is it an Ottoman story? Is it an Alexandrian story? I mean, our listeners know that we've had um, podcasts on capitalism in the courts with Omar Cheta. We've had one on Salonika as a port city. So is there something uniquely Egyptian, Mediterranean? What's going on here? So in the, in the age of steam, 
the end of the 19th century um, integration of all of these parts of the Ottoman Empire into the world economy, we have some similar conditions in, in the different port cities of, of the empire. Lots of new populations, um, lots of circulation migration. Um, and so in some senses, Alexandria is similar to a city like Salonika. But what's unusual about Alexandria and makes it a particularly good place to, to look at this question of nationality is that the city was governed by a what I would suggest is a, a uniquely complex legal, legal regime, a, a, a regime in which almost two dozen different authorities had real, uh, had real power, real claim over certain parts of the population of the territory in, in that city. Um, so uh, part of this was a, uh, not even a remnant, but a continuation of the capitulation system that'll be familiar to a lot of your listeners from uh, previous podcasts. And this system um, managed the devolution of authority over uh, populations who were subjects of foreign governments uh, in, in the Ottoman Empire. And this also applied in Egypt, uh, including in this, in this late time period. But there were other kinds of uh, jurisdictional complexity. Britain obviously was military occupier and asserted a lot of uh, a lot of military and policing authority over the city. Uh, but it wasn't absolute authority, and they weren't they weren't interested in total control over the city. They wanted control over certain spheres of uh, of order um, and a sort of economic control. Uh, there were other kinds of economic control. Egypt was uh, working through a bankruptcy, was making payment on debts, and there was foreign control of the uh, of the the public purse. There was a very strong municipality in Alexandria, which was founded in 1890, but functioning even earlier than that. That was exerting local control uh, over a, a lot of planning questions. The governor of the city was appointed by uh, by the government in in Cairo. He had important authority. The Ottomans retained important authority over, uh, over uh, Alexandria. A lot of the legislation used in Egypt continued to be of Ottoman provenance, and uh, very important for my book is the Ottoman, uh, the Ottoman Nationality Law of 1869, which was Egypt's only nationality law until 1926. Um, and uh, as I explain in the book in very tangible ways, um, this kind of uh, Ottoman authority was felt in the city. Um, so um, there were very real realms of authority from many different directions, and um, this was a, a legal pluralist environment exemplified in bodies like the mixed courts that you mentioned, but in many other, many other parts of legal and everyday life. And so what is your source base here? So you're looking at these consular courts, correct? How are you getting at this kind of like multi-ethnic, multilingual world that is the Alexandria legal code or nationality? I mean, my understanding of the complexity of the legal, uh, the legal archive of this society was certainly framed by my work in the archives. And the most extensive series of sources that I worked with came from um, the British and French archives. They each preserved uh, different aspects of the records that they kept about the legal and um, civil affairs of their subjects. Um, so the British consular court records, for instance, are dossiers which are catch-alls. They threw in every bit of correspondence that they received, and they're in just a tremendously diverse set of documents. Often 
uh, you'll have a dossier about a case often you have no idea what the how the case was finally settled but the sort of uh, ephemera that you pick up along the way are, are very revealing the french records uh, on the other hand uh, are quite thorough sets um, there's a complete set of judgments which are explained in detail for the whole time period uh, from the french consular courts and they're also a very extensive series of registration dossiers of Algerian and uh, Tunisian French subjects. And then I also worked uh, in the American and Egyptian and uh, Ottoman and Italian archives, finding the, the material that they had uh, about all these topics, which was uh, less complete, um, but certainly informed, uh, informed my study in important ways. Wow. In many senses of the word, your archive kind of uh, exemplifies or embodies this cosmopolitanism that people usually attribute to Alexandria, but at the same time you you complicate this narrative of cosmopolitan, cosmopolitanism um, and what it means or, it, or what it has meant in previous research. Um, so with that being said, how does your approach differ or compare to other academic scholarship that has looked at Alexandria, particularly within or without the realm of cosmopolitanism? Um, I know Hala Halim's book, Alexandria and Cosmopolitanism, an archive is one of you know the big books that people cite when they talk about Alexandria. One of the ideas that I'm trying to convey in the book is that identification is... Uh, determined by context, uh, specific by context, uh, specific to context. Um, so it's not a, a permanent, fixed, objective thing, but a provisional. And uh, cosmopolitanism is uh, an important way that the city has been identified and described. And as a so- social historian, I think that that description has done more harm than good. Um, it's it's caused. I think, a sort of comforting um, confusion about the specifics of how the society was, was made up. Now, it's been, I, I think it's, it's the word which is associated with the city. It's impossible to escape, but, but it's also, I think, productive to, to dwell on it a little bit. Um, in the field of literary production, which is uh, the interest of Hala Halim and others who've, who've written about, about the city, um, you you absolutely have a, a lineage of uh, of writers who self-identify as cosmopolitan. You know, Cavafy and Forrester and Durrell used the city as a resource for this sort of writing, and um, Michael Haig has written about uh, has written about them in that in that context. But there's a, a kind of um, celebratory uh, version of Alexandrian cosmopolitanism. A, a nostalgia which is um, very problematic politically, um, which uh, is often anti-Egyptian, anti-Muslim, pro-colonial. Um, uh, it's it's a, a vision which um, which erases the majority of the population in in the place, um, and uh, a lot of what I'm trying to do is to write against that. Now, some of the Hala Halim, uh, Deborah Starr, who's also worked on. Um, cosmopolitanism in, in the arts in, in Alexandria, they're uh, not beset by this um, colonial vision, um, but they're working on a different set of material from, from, what I'm, from, from what I'm working on. And so I am wrestling with this question of cosmopolitanism in the uh, field of social history. Another 
question that I'm that I'm interested in, and I think there's a there's an association here with this question uh, of cosmopolitanism is the question of legal pluralism, and this this is a, I think another thing something which is special about uh, Alexandria, but which is often vaguely invoked but not really carefully uh, carefully investigated. So there is a general sense that. Um, that the Mediterranean was a was a site of legal cosmopolitanism, of jurisdictional uh, shopping and that sort of thing, um, and uh, there's a literature on this on this general question of people who move between places and move between identities. But just as the literature on cosmopolitanism is doesn't do a great job of specifying exactly what what was going on, much of this literature on legal pluralism. Uh, also, um, I think sidesteps the precision which is necessary to to tell that story quite clearly. So both cosmopolitanism and legal pluralism seem to offer a space for historians to uh, to say something about fuzzy, blurred identities. Um, but I guess I'm skeptical uh, about how much those can tell us analytically, and I'm very skeptical that um, the people we write about in the past actually experienced confusion or fuzzy identities or any of those things. I don't think that language is appropriate to the historical experience that I saw described in the, in the archival documents. So in the sense that uh, legal cosmopolitanism or, cosmopo- or cultural cosmopolitanism in general, you say provides this kind of like funny, fuzzy or amorphous non-structure that kind of allows academics to play with and sometimes overemphasize the ease with which certain categories are fluid. Um, how does your nationality become fixed, if at all? Or what are the tangible things and documents that you are looking at to see how nationality and identity becomes negotiated? Well, the alternative to fuzzy language is precise language. And I, in the book, work to specify the meaning of nationality and a bunch of other quite precise legally defined forms of status determination. So nationality is defined by uh, a legal scholar who works on the, the topic as the status of belonging to a state for certain purposes of international law. You can think of uh, nationality as Uh, a person's affiliation with a state when they're away from that state. Um, Nationality isn't something that you use in your place of residence very much, but you use it a lot when you're abroad. And it can be distinguished from, in the book I distinguish nationality from nationalism, which is a bunch of sort of feelings and sentiments and ideas that you have of of belonging to a a national group. Uh, But these are in the political and the sentimental scale, not in the, not in the legal register. So I def, uh, that's one way that nationalism is different from nationality. And I also distinguish nationality from citizenship. So there's a big literature uh, about citizenship, which is mostly about um, how people who are full members in whatever polity they live in um, exercise that membership often in, in a political sense, um, but uh, there, there are various, the literature explores various ways that people are, exercise their membership. And nationality isn't always about that either. It's, it's mostly about um, the way uh, that individuals 
uh, are represented as affiliated with states and represent their own affiliation with states in their encounters with people of other nationalities. And that is something which uh, happened to an extraordinary degree in Alexandria at the, at the, turn of, at the end of the 19th century. Um, it's a very important part of how the international order works in the present day. Um, and I think that Alexandria was uh, one of the places where this uh, new legal technology, which really came into its own between the First World War and the Second World War, um, Alexandria was a place where that, uh, where that technology uh, emerged. And so in the book, I talk about uh, five different kinds of, of status associated with, uh, with nationality. I talk about nationals, about citizens, about residents, people who um, had a, a legal status associated with living in a place, about foreigners, and about subjects, about, about people who were um, under, the, under the domination and protection of, of, of a given regime. So these are, these are kinds of status which are folded into, uh, into the, the legal status of nationality that I, that I discuss in the book, and I make a real effort to be very precise about what exactly uh, is entailed and is not entailed by uh, describing people uh, according to their affiliation with states. So up until this point, um, even though part of what your book is doing is trying to um, put weight uh, to the bodies that are imbued with varying kinds of nationality, uh, we've still been talking about identity or nationality as kind of like these fuzzy abstract legal categories. But I think it's important for listeners to know that you know you start your book off with a bar brawl on Sharia Sababanet in Alexandria. So you're very invested in kind of like history or in, in the people who nationality, for better or for worse, pulls together or sometimes pulls apart. Well, I mean, I've been really interested. I've learned a lot from reading um, social histories of the law, and uh, I've been amazed by uh, historians, particularly in the American context, who are able to treat law not as something which exists in the books, but as something which exists in practice um, and are able to very nicely bridge the space between law's doctrine and law, law's practice. And that's something I've tried to do in the book. So um, I've, I've tried to describe a sort of uh, cosmopolitan encounter in which uh, people uh, coming from different backgrounds and carrying with them different characteristics uh, encounter others who uh, they understand in their own terms. And I, one of those terms is, is terms of nationality. So people saw each other and described each other uh, in national terms. And sometimes these corresponded with what the law considers to be national affiliation. But often they didn't. Often there were misunderstandings, there were misidentifications. Uh, even more often, people didn't have any legally determined nationality at all, but were simply considered to belong to national categories which, which they themselves would not be able to, to, um, to access in, in the courts. So I tried to describe that range, of, uh, that range of national identifications and misidentifications in, in everyday encounters of the sort that you find in, in the bar brawls that, uh, that, happened, uh, that happened in the, the mean streets of Alexandria. Um, 
but there are all, all sorts of other sort of lines of encounter that I, that I try to gesture at as well. Not just lines of national difference or sectarian difference, but, um, but the differences between other kinds of insiders and outsiders. Um, natives and newcomers is, you know, one set of ideas that I use. Um, I'm also interested in people who are knowledgeable and people who are ignorant. The very basic difference between people who can find their way around and people who can't find their way around. Um, the relationship between people who have personal relationships with those around them and with the authorities that they meet and people who rely on the impersonal relationships that are that are produced by nationalities accoutrements like like documents and um, and courts and legal status and that sort of thing um, so I'm interested in sort of a range of, of borderlines between uh, between insiders and outsiders, and nationalities is an important component of this, um, but uh, but it's not always um, a simple or straightforward determination. So welcome back to the second half of this Autumn History Podcast interview with Will Hanley. We are discussing his new book, Identifying with Nationality, which explores how nationality was practiced and put to test on the gritty, faceless streets of Alexandria in the late 19th century. Before our break, you started to get into the kinds of paper economies that are created by nationality. Uh, in the book, you look at documents like passports, birth certificates, censuses, and these are the means by which you argue kind of like the nation starts to construct affiliations 
between these strangers on the streets. And so one of these affiliations that you talk about is marriage. And uh, in your chapter about marriage, you argue that the practice of nationality was not just a universal theory that could be practiced evenly. And you look at money and marriage to, to argue this. But marriage in particular becomes a sort of testing ground, you say, uh, to don or shoe nationality as particular individuals saw fit. Um, and so could you maybe tell us a little bit about a cool marriage case or, or divorce case uh, that you cover in the book? Sure. Well, um, marriage is, uh, is an interesting means to understand nationality for, for a couple of reasons. Uh, the first reason is that when you look at the documents produced by law courts, you see that a huge number of them are concerned with marriage. Marriage was a big source of, uh, of work for the courts. Um, the second reason is that um, nationality only became vivid, practical, realized in people's lives when occasion rose for it to be investigated. And um, for the most part, it was a question people weren't concerned with. It, it didn't have any real importance in their, in their lives. Um, but the moments when it did have importance uh, often revolved around uh, things related to marriage. Um, and there was a, a sense in which uh, the, law, the law held that uh, men, that the nationality of men covered that of, of women, that it uh, uh, determined that of women. So um, daughters had the nationality of their fathers until such time as they were married, that when typically they would, uh, they would acquire the nationality of their husbands. But uh, the, there were many interesting cases generated in which uh, women didn't want to go along with this, with this order of, uh, with the, with this order of determining, you know, who who determined their their nationality. Sometimes women, uh, for instance, a, a a woman married to a, uh, a a woman who enjoyed French protection because of because her father was an Algerian, might marry uh, an Egyptian national and lose her foreign protection. But upon the death of her husband, she would try to get that foreign protection back again. So there, there are cases of that sort where, where uh, women are, are fighting with the courts to try and get protection. Another thing that I find in, in a lot of these cases is that the various foreign authorities, uh, French, British, uh, Egyptian, uh, religious authorities, would uh, work together to try and hold hold back the uh, the status claims of of women, and I have a a, a story in here, a story of Nafisa Hanum, uh, a story which is also treated in Ken Kuno's book on marriage. Um, but I, I talk about its nationality dimensions, uh, and here we see uh, we see a woman of uh, who has considerable social status um, working within the, the the frameworks of the the laws that are available to her to try to find the the position which is going to offer her the most status, um, and we see the the collusion of the various authorities to try to um, sort of overcome the possibilities that the law presents to this woman. Uh, in order to uh, to keep her in a in a subordinate position, so marriage is a site where we see a lot of the uh, sort of ironies limits of these circumstances uh, in which nationality becomes suddenly becomes sort of a vivid and important question in people's lives, a place where these these ironies are are explored both in the courts and in 
the action that happens outside the courts as, as authorities attempt to enforce court decisions. Okay, so that's great. And so this story of Nafisa Hanum shows that um, nationality was not always extended equally to all subjects in Alexandria, nor was it, you know, easily won. Yeah, that's that's absolutely right. Um, and part of what I am trying to map out in the book is an index, uh, an index of statuses, which shows that uh, nationality wasn't uh, wasn't sort of a straightforward kind of blanket identity that people held, but was one among many other factors which uh, which helped determine what they could and could not achieve in their uh, in in their lives. And so, in the, in the third part of the book, I I talk about six different kinds of statuses, which fed into nationality and which were which were made. Um, which which played separate roles uh, in the period before the First World War, but were subsumed into the status of nationality uh, after the war. And so um, Nafisa Hanum was uh, was uh, a wealthy, a relatively wealthy woman, and benefited from uh, elite status. And in this, she was like um, some of the Europeans in Alexandria who um, who had uh, who were were wealthy. And had a status to go, uh, had a legal status of foreign protection to go along with their elite status, and were exempt from local prosecution and control under the capitulations. But she was also a colonial subject, um, and uh, so as uh, as an Algerian, um, she never really had uh, complete access to uh, to French citizenship. Certainly, um, was always just a just a French national at best. Uh, and that line between um, between citizens of the metropole and subjects of the empire was really uh, vivid in Alexandria, uh, in part because the law of the, the the law of jurisdiction said that um, that foreign powers such as the British and French were responsible for their imperial subjects such as the Maltese and Algerians. And had to treat them as nationals in much the same term as they would as they would treat Englishmen or uh, you know Parisians. Um, so in the eyes of uh, in the eyes of the jurisdiction system, uh, these subjects of empire had similar status. But of course, for the French and British officials who were managing this status. Uh, that sort of idea was that sort of leveling was uh, was impossible for them to to um, to accommodate, and so they were often put in uh, difficult and quite ironic positions managing um, managing the privilege that their uh, their exceptional status offered some of them, um, but then dealing with the burden of uh, of imperial subjects who unfortunately also enjoyed this uh, also enjoyed this this exceptional status. This story of Nafisa Hanum really um, captures what I thought was a really um, profound and important aspect of your book, and that that you emphasize, you know, cosmopolitan Alexandria was not uh, cosmopolitan because it was European, or that there are lots of European foreigners, but that most of the individuals negotiating nationality at this time are uh, non-European foreigners. So they're uh, North Africans or their Ottomans or people from other Mediterranean cities. But how does this new legal regime impact Egyptians? This, this, the, the book um, 
concludes with a, a look at local status, at, uh, at the status of people who weren't foreign, who didn't enjoy the nationality protections that, uh, that foreigners had. Um, and eventually, these locals become Egyptian nationals. But as I said earlier, uh, Egyptian nationality is not a law on the books. It's not a status which exists in legal terms really until 1926. Before that time, uh, whenever, uh, whenever nationality questions had to be answered about uh, Egyptians, they were Ottoman nationals. Um, now, these sorts of questions were only really posed when Egyptians were abroad, and I tell some stories in the book about, about Egyptians overseas who uh, had their affairs managed uh, under, uh, by, by Ottoman consular officials. But uh, at the same time that uh, this externally Egyptians were being, um, were being cast as Ottomans, internally uh, the Egyptian bureaucracy was working to uh, establish uh, more and more status markers uh, and more and more categories of identification and protection which applied to local subjects. They were working to uh, promote civic rights um, and social rights to some extent for Egyptians which were, for local subjects which were commensurate to those that they saw foreign subjects uh, enjoying. And so I talk about how uh, nationality um, was a domain in which, uh, in which, which local subjects began to push for, um, push for certain sort of uh, statuses that they observed uh, others uh, enjoying. And this was a, sort of a gradual piecemeal process, which, like all other expressions of nationality, only uh, took place in people's lives at moments when they really needed it. It wasn't something about a blanket identity that they carried through their whole lives. Um, this was instead uh, about moments when people really needed to, um, to establish their status as, uh, as an Egyptian subject, for instance, to um, have access to certain kinds of jobs or, uh, or employment. Um, and uh, until the First World War, this was intermittent, although there was, there was sort of a steady accumulation of, um, of experiences uh, in the context of, as I say, employment or taxation or military conscription or uh, experiences with, with the police and law courts, um, which made uh, affiliation with, with Egypt come to be a more frequent part of the everyday lives of inhabitants of Alexandria, just as affiliation with, uh, with the Ottoman Empire or with, with uh, French nationality, for example, uh, Italian or Greek nationality, became an important part of the, the everyday lives of, of others in the city. That's great. And so, in a sense, nationality becomes made in these moments of friction, it seems. Yeah, and it's, it's a process that, that takes decades, um, a process of many many uh, moments of, uh, of friction involving a few individuals um, and understanding the cumulative effect um, is something that, that I tried to do in the book. Great. Okay. Well, I think that that is um, an excellent point to end our conversation on. But as our listeners may know, the conversation doesn't end here. We're going to be posting a bibliography um, with this interview for those who are interested in reading more on 
legal history in Egypt, um, works on nationality, cosmopolitan, Mediterranean port cities um, more generally, and also um, we're going to list the works that Will has mentioned um, and his answers to our questions today. Thank you so much for sitting down and talking with us today, Will. Thank you, Taylor. It's nice to talk. And thank you to our listeners for uh, staying tuned. Uh, see you next time on Autumn History Podcast.